Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is what we'll look at this morning. John 3.16. John 3.16 is probably one of the most recognized verses in the Bible, if not the most recognized verse in the Bible. It's probably one of the first verses you learn when you want to uh, understand how to begin to share the good news with others. And if you went to Sunday school, it was likely one of the first verses you learned in Sunday school. Now, if you're a sports fan and you remember the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you'll also remember the Rainbow Man, a.k.a. Roland Stewart. He traveled around to every major U.S. sporting event with his wig of rainbow-colored hair and his placard that read John 3.16, and they would always seem to pan the crowd to find this gentleman. And that verse is this simply, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But despite the popularity of this verse, and that we've heard it again and again throughout our whole lives, despite the popularity, people still struggle with the simple message. It's either dismissed or it just can't be true. We, we, we have to add something to it. I want to read to you some findings from a study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. The summary I am quoting is from the executive director, Dr. Tracy Munsell. Here's what they had to say. Unlike past generations of Americans who readily recognized the reality of sin and the need for salvation through Jesus Christ, U.S. adults today adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective, with a near-majority, 48%, believing that if a person is generally good or does enough good during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. Only one-third of American adults, 35%, continue to embrace the traditional biblical view that salvation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a wake-up call for the church. The majority of people who describe themselves as Christian, 52% accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. What is even more shocking is the huge proportions of people who attend churches whose official doctrine says Eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior. Nonetheless, believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. Now listen to these stats. These are amazing. And I'm not going to pick on the Pentecostal church across the road, but they're first up. These are American stats. 46% of Pentecostals would adhere to something along a works-based salvation, according to this survey. Mainline Protestant churches, 44%. We don't do much better as evangelicals or Bible-believing churches. 41% who would, who would attend or say that their home church is evangelical would hold to something along a works-based salvation and 70% of Catholics embrace that point of view. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. Adding to the gospel, though, isn't anything new. In the Council of Jerusalem, which you can read about in Acts 15, this was the issue at hand. The issue was that individuals believed that a person could be right or get right with God if they would conform to the Mosaic Law. And the focus they had, especially for the men, was on circumcision. So if you would just do this, you would be right with God. You needed to add this to salvation. So if one wanted to be a Christian, their concept was that you would first have to convert to Judaism and then be circumcised if you're a male, and then you could become a Christian. Holding to this doctrine of a mix of grace and works and the Mosaic law, or keeping that law, well, they were referred to as Judaizers. And the church of Philippi was facing this very same issue. The unbiblical doctrine was being presented to the church. Paul addresses that issue here in chapter 3, answering a commonly asked question, even today. In one form or another, people will always ask this question, Am I not good enough to get to heaven? What happens if I'm not good enough? And just as Judaizers thought that outward conformity to the Mosaic law would bring salvation, the people who are sitting in the pews, there are people sitting in the pews of our evangelical churches, our Bible-believing churches. Statistically, here this morning, that would add something to the gospel, that would wonder if they had to do something, if there were some good works or some sort of secret way for them to get to heaven. It's just not faith alone. Listen to people. When you, when you hear them talk, it's almost that as we uh, approach those pearly gates after we die, that someone is there. Usually it's St. Peter, right? It's always St. Peter. We always pick on St. Peter. So you approach the pearly gates and St. Peter is there sitting with these, these move, with these scales and they weigh out your good deeds versus your bad deeds. That's unfortunately where a lot of people are. But that's not what scripture tells us. Unfortunately, when you hear people talk, you hear them talking of everyone's going to make it. I mean, you have to be really, really, it's only the Stalins and Hitlers of our society that don't make it to heaven. They're the ones that are rejected. And I can understand that doctrine a little. I can understand why people gravitate to that. Because when we look around us, we see people differently than God does. So we see a neighbor that's maybe kind to us and kind to other neighbors. We might work with someone that's kind. We might have a relative that is kind. And it's hard for us to understand, you know what? That person is bound for hell. Hell is a tough doctrine. We don't like to think of those relatives we eat Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner with, or perhaps children that we've raised and they're going to hell. 
So it's very easy for people to comfort themselves by saying, well, well, they're good. They'll make it. The issue came up also at the Council of Trent in the 16th century with the Roman Catholic Church. They condemned Luther's claim that salvation was by faith alone. Rather, salvation was a mixture of grace and works. There were certain sacraments that had to be Take, had to take place or you had to take part of for you to receive salvation. Well, the Catholic scripture or the Catholic teaching is incorrect. It is by faith alone. That's what scripture teaches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can open your word this morning. And as we open up to Philippians, as we look at, look at some great teaching that it's faith alone, Help us to understand that and the impact that it may have on us personally in our own lives. Do we really believe that it's faith alone? Do we see the need to share the scripture for those people that are good around us that need Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? So open our hearts and our minds up this morning to your word. In Christ's name, amen. So Philippians chapter 3, if you're not there, turn there please. Philippians 3, let's just look at the first verse to begin with. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now finally there sounds a little too conclusive in the sense that the, uh, this is not the conclusion to the letter. Matter of fact, the letter is not even quite half done. So a better translation would be, furthermore, or well then, rejoice in the Lord. That the idea seems to be that in the church of Philippi, they were feeling some pressure from false teachers, from legalism, and how they needed to be saved. And the problem with legalism is that legalism and legalistic thinking steals our joy. So Paul encourages them to have joy in the Lord. Not in the circumstances around them, but to have joy in the Lord. Uh, the latter part of the verse is actually the most intriguing and leaves us with the biggest question. And it, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Well, what's Paul referring to there? What are those same things? Some write and believe that, there are, that this is alluding to some previous letters or communiques between Paul and the church. The only problem with that is these so-called communiques, communiques about Judaizers, well, there's no evidence in Scripture to back that up. Rather, it's likely a reference back to what we find in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, is Paul is simply talking about the opponents that they faced in Philippi. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and not frightened by anything by your opponents. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's probably what Paul is referencing here, that there is more opposition. He's dealt with some of the opposition already. Now he's going to deal with some more opposition. And he wastes no time at getting to his point. Look at Philippians chapter 3 in the second verse. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
there's no mincing of words here. Uh, when he thinks of Judaizers, three times he tells the people, beware, be on guard for them. And three times he calls the opposition out by names. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators, or flesh mutilators. And when you think of dogs, don't think of the dogs that we have today in our homes, these cute, nice little pets that sit for their treats and shake their paw with you and nudge you when you get up in the morning. That's not what we're talking about. When he calls them dogs, you need to think of mangy, flea-infested, dangerous scavengers walking around the streets. That's what he's talking about when he calls them dogs. And calling them evildoers. Well, that one is somewhat ironic. Judaizers promoted good works. Their air was they were adding to the gospel. They were attacking the doctrine of salvation. Salvation by faith alone. And then he calls them, and he does a little bit of wordplay here, he describes those who would insist on circumcision as mutilators of the flesh. Now, circumcision was instituted by God as an outward sign to people, or to especially men, that belonged to the covenant community, God's chosen people. And drawing on that term of circumcision, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. But he also uses that term as a transition point from the old covenant to the new covenant. Look at the next verse, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He refers to the new circumcision, the new covenant in which the church of Philippi and all Gentile believers belonged. It's the circumcision of the heart. The true circumcised worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. And it's here that we can find three authentic marks of a Christian. The first, authentic Christians worship in the Spirit of God. John 14, 23, 24 reads this, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. See, the focus here is on the divine work of our salvation. Our spirit is quickened. It comes alive. Before salvation, we were dead to our sins. We were spiritually dead. The second mark of a true follower of Christ, well, they don't brag themselves up, but they glory in Christ. Romans 5, 2. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what He has done for us. Our true identity can only be found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The third mark. A Christian has no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing that you and I can do to repair that relationship with God. Isaiah 64, 6, and you may be familiar with this. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade 
like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We rejoice in the Lord, in what He has done for us. That verse lets us know that our good is not good enough. We will never be able to repair that relationship. It reminds me of an old hymn. Some of you will know this hymn by Edward Mote. On Christ the solid rock I stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what he's talking about there. I want to read for you Romans 3, 23 through 26. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People were made right with God when they believed that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. It's all about Christ. Paul now turns his attention, and he takes this case of it that it's all about Jesus and nothing that he can do. It's almost like there's this hypothetical debate between him and someone else. Look with me to verses 4 through 6 as he builds his case. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's, it's like he's taking the stand. He's saying, you think you can put confidence in the flesh? If anybody can, I can. Here's who I am. And he makes, he makes some claims for us. Four of these qualifications that he would see that were so great prior to his coming to Christ for having confidence in his flesh, four of them are hereditary reasons. Three of them are, are convictions or things that he's done or qualifications that he's earned. Look at them. Circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Leviticus 12.3. His parents conformed to the law. Paul was not a proselyte. Paul was born into it. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Second, 2 Corinthians 11.22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. He was born in Israel. He was born an Israelite. Third, a Benjaminite, an esteemed tribe. He was part of the nation's highest aristocracy. He was part of the tribe who was who, who, who's who. Lastly, Hebrew of the Hebrew. He, this donates, denotes the idea, a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. He was 100% pure stock. 
It wasn't mixed with any other race. He was Hebrew. Then he has three other qualifications that he gives. <clears throat> he was a Pharisee. Acts 26, 5. They have known for a long time if they are, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. He was part of the religious elite. He wasn't just Jewish. He knew his stuff. He was a Pharisee. <coughs> Excuse me. He was zealous about his religion. This was the second thing. Zealous about a, he was misguided, but he was zealous. Paul as Saul was well known for his persecution of Christians. He was well known that he had made it his personal mission to wipe them out. Wanted to get rid of all the Christians. And third, righteousness. He was faultless. With strict observance of the law, no one could compare to him. If there was a checklist of what you had to do, Paul had every one of them marked off. Paul was impeccable in his resume regarding being Jewish and religious. That surely would earn him a place in eternity beside God. At least that's what he thought until the Damascus Road. That was what he thought until he encountered the living Lord Jesus Christ. There was a popular song on the Christian radio last year. It was by a lady by the name of Baylor Taylor Wilson. And it was about her, a reflection of her conversion. Here's what it said. Jesus happened. In the blink of an eye, every part of my life was changed. Jesus happened. Like a thief in the night, he started taking the lives away. And all my sin was forgiven. The moment I met his grace, that's when I started living. And all that my heart can say is, Jesus happened. And that's what happened to Paul. Paul was on the Damascus Road and Jesus happened. He meant the living God right there. His life was changed. His eyes were opened. His values were changed. That which was important to him at one time was now considered. Look with me to verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul goes all caps here, if I could say it that way. There are a couple of words he could have chosen to put, uh, put the word but in there. One is a very soft but, and the other is very emphatic. It's a, it's a hard but, and Paul goes hard here. But whatever I gain, I, have, I had... I consider loss. Paul's rejecting everything before. The word loss could also be found. This same word is found a couple of other occasions in the New Testament and is found in Acts chapter 27, particularly in verse 10. Sirs, and this is Paul going, he's, you may recall the journey. It was, he was going to Rome. 
he approaches the sailors. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. Now, in this story, Paul was headed to Rome, and it was winter. And the stormy season, it was the stormy season for the Mediterranean. And he encouraged the sailors, hey, look, wait a second. Let's not press on to Crete just at this time. But they went anyways. And as they headed out across the Mediterranean, a fierce storm arose. And it raged for days. That's the word that's used here for loss. A loss here indicates the idea of the loss of the ship, the loss of the cargo or goods, the loss of lives. It's a loss. It's not like I lost my keys to the car and I go looking for them. This loss here is a minus. It's gone. It's that type of loss. This story also serves to an illustration of what Paul is discussing here. Exchanging loss for gain. In, in Acts, the crew and the passengers survive, but to survive, they needed to throw everything overboard. The cargo, the provisions, they were all thrown over so that they could try to run the ship ashore. And in the end, the ship was lost, but their lives were gained. One exchange for another. Paul believed his exchange to be worthwhile too. He exchanged all that he once held dear. He calls it rubbish. And he exchanges that for something far superior. Knowing Christ. The New Living Translation, verse 8, reads like this. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it, as, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. The word know here is an intimate term. It's a term about relationships. Paul exchanged the old life for a new life. Paul exchanged the old relationship for a new relationship. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He continues with this thought, this theme in verses 9 through 11. This idea of exchanging that which is garbage for that which is good. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. In salvation, our sin, our guilt are credited to Christ. And then Christ's righteousness is credited to us. To all those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, all your sin is given to Christ and all Christ's righteousness is given to you. That's quite the exchange. Here's some thoughts on that exchange because that is what happens. One, Christ's righteousness becomes ours. Two, 
The exchange is not merited. It's not workspace. There's nothing you can do to earn this exchange. The exchange, for number three, must be appropriated by faith. Four, it's a free gift from God. Fifth, it results in a striving spiritually for us to strive spiritually to know Christ better. I can't help but think of the words from an old hymn. More about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Listen as I read those verses. I'm going to read them in a different translation. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Can you feel the passion that Paul has here? It's a lifelong quest to know Christ, to be in relationship with Christ, to strive in his Christian faith. See, when a believer comes to faith, we die to sin. The guilt is removed. Its power over us is removed. And the power of Christ then resides in us. We, for the first time, have the ability to say no to sin. Now, I'm not advocating the idea that you'll become perfect here on earth. But as one grows in Christ, as one develops this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, the grasp of sin on our life should lessen. Yes, the old nature will still war with inside us. And until we're in the presence of our Lord, it will never be fully defeated. But there's a sense that when Jesus Christ, there's a sense that we are crucified with Christ and raised in new life. And as we strive to get to know God, as we strive in God's spirit to live out that new life, we become the light to the world around us of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Romans 6.4 says this, When we're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in Galatians 2.20 we read this, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a tension here. And the tension is this. We can do nothing for our salvation, but it's by faith alone. It's, it's, it's not something that we can do ourselves. And we have to give it over. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 again. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. However, as we've already seen, and here's the tension, we're commanded to live out this new identity. We're commanded to strive, to work out our salvation. But working out our salvation is not our salvation. But working out our salvation is proof of our salvation. 
It is proof that God has changed our hearts and our desires. Have you allowed God this morning to change your hearts, your desires? There's a good chance that someone is either sitting here this morning or online with us this morning that is still striving for salvation, that still might be asking themselves, how much do I have to do? Am I good enough yet? Or what can I do? Because I will never be good enough. If you could have been good enough, if you could have done it on your own, then why did Christ need to come? Why would he have died on the cross for us? The offer's right there for anyone that's here this morning. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We were designed, we were designed for an eternity. The problem we have is when we start thinking of the word eternity, we often put it in quantity of days. But that's not what scripture talks about. Each of us are eternal beings now. When scripture talks about eternity, it's talking about quality of life. You will live somewhere. The question is where? It's all about your address. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ opens that relationship between you and God. It opens up that ability for you one day to live in the presence of, the, of Jesus Christ, to live in the presence of God. Rejection of that doesn't mean annihilation when this is all done. It means a Christless eternity. It means that you are bound for hell. Given those statistics, there is somebody either online or somebody here this morning that may have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or at least somebody here who still struggles thinking, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy for what Jesus did for me. I'm here to tell you, none of us are worthy. I'm not worth it. At least I wouldn't think I would be. But Christ died for you, and he died for me. That offer of salvation is there for anyone who's willing to step down, step down off their own podium, step down away from their own pride, and say, okay, I can't earn this. There's nothing that I can do. Jesus did it all. I ask that you bow your heads. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that in a, a couple of levels. You may be brokenhearted this morning. You may be empty-handed. You may be confused. And Jesus Christ stands there, and he's saying, come. Come just, just as you are. You can't earn it, so don't bother trying but I want you to come. If there's anyone here this morning or anyone online that has yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to talk with one of the elders. Paul's here, Greg's here, Yun's here, I'm here. There's others who know Jesus Christ that would be glad to talk with you. Brian's here. 
glad to share with you what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I also want you to think this morning of those around you. And I don't want you to give up on a son or a daughter or a grandchild who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And I know it's hard, but I want you to use these verses as a motivation to reach out to your neighbors, to reach out to those around you. You cannot be responsible for their response to the gospel, but you can be a messenger to share with them, to pray for them. Whether they become a believer or not is between them and the Lord. But we're all called to be witnesses. To tell people that Jesus Christ died for them and to tell them that they, they don't have to earn it. There's a misconception out there. They don't have to earn it. There's nothing they can do to earn it. But God's gift stands there for them and he offers it to them. Father, as we think, of, we think of your love for us, we think of Scripture, we think that there is nothing that we can do, that it's faith alone. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening this morning, anyone that listens to this later online that doesn't know you, that they might reach out and we could pray for them and give them some information and help them to understand how much you care for them. And then if they have accepted Jesus Christ, if they've come to you this morning and said, Lord, I want to take that offer. I, I want you to cleanse my life. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you were buried and rose again. Father, that we might be able to help them to grow in that newfound faith. And Father, I pray for courage and boldness for each individual here this morning that knows Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You have chosen us, as imperfect as we are, to be your witness, a testimony to the world around us. So Father, while we often pray for our missionaries, may we understand that we are missionaries to our neighbors that are not believers in Christ, to our family that are not believers in Christ. May we be bold. May we take the steps needed to be able to share with people around us. And Father, for those, and you know those here this morning that are sharing with unsaved relatives, sharing with unsaved neighbors, co-workers, Father, we pray for those co-workers that you'll draw these people to yourself and that you'll continue to give the wisdom to those that are sharing with them and the right words at the right time. And we thank you for your love for us, and we thank you that we don't have to earn it. And because we don't have to earn it, and it's all from you, we can have confidence that when we've come to you, that our salvation is secure, because it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with you. And as God, you've secured our salvation. You have secured a place for us with you for an eternity. So we thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.